On this prequel episode, we're learning about fairy tales versus fantasy and previewing Stardust. Hello and welcome back to another prequel episode of This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We have a full learning things segment this week. It's been a while since we've had a full... Yeah. Thorough learning things segment. Uh, we've done a similar segment before when we talked about sci-fi versus fantasy. Yes, we did. Now we're talking about fairy tales versus fantasy. So let's get into it. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. I got really into it because this is kind of my wheelhouse. It is your this thing. Is, this is where I live, uh, the fairy tales. Yep. So I want to start out um, with a couple of definitions. Um, so first off, I want to uh, draw a line between fantasy and high fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm pulling from the Encyclopedia Britannica here for my definitions. Um, so fantasy is imaginative fiction. Um, it's dependent for effect on strangeness of setting and or of characters. So fantasy can encompass a lot of things, including sci-fi. Yeah, we, as we discussed. Yeah. Um, high fantasy, then, is a subgenre of fantasy. Um, and it's defined by uh, epic nature of its setting or by epic stature of characters, themes, plot, etc., um, and the term high fantasy was actually coined by Lloyd, Lloyd Alexander, who's the author of the Chronicles of Prydain, I think is how it's pronounced. Okay. Um, so if you're familiar at all with the uh, ill-fated Disney movie, The Black Cauldron. Oh. Yeah, that's that based on, based I think, on that? book <clears throat> one huh. of that series. I did not know that. Um, I've never <clears throat> actually read it, but I'd like to do it for this podcast yeah, at some point. Um, yeah, so he coined the term in his 1971 essay, High Fantasy and Heroic Romance. Um, now, really, it's it's the works of Tolkien mm-hmm. that are widely regarded as archetypal works of high fantasy. Um, they're kind of the high fantasy, like, blueprint, if you will. Yes. A uh, fairy tale, then, is a little bit of a different thing. Uh, it's also a subgenre of fantasy, if we talk about fantasy as like an umbrella term. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a fairy tale is a wonder tale involving marvelous elements and occurrences. It can be about fairies, but it doesn't necessarily have to be about fairies. And there are a lot of stories that we consider fairy tales that do not have fairies in them yes. at all. Yeah. Uh, but fairy tales encompass both folklore that originates from the oral tradition. So your Cinderella, your Little Red Riding Hood, your Snow White, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also uh, includes later tales that were composed by specific authors. For example, um, everything that Hans Christian Andersen wrote, uh, The Little Mermaid, The Ugly Duckling, uh, The Snow Queen. Um, Oscar Wilde also wrote some uh Specific fairy tales, for example, The Rose and the Nightingale. Um, And stories like these are often called literary fairy tales as a kind of a way to delineate them from the older stuff that comes from. Yeah, that oral tradition stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so fairy fantasy and fairy tales are sometimes used interchangeably, um, most likely because like, fantasy is an umbrella term, like I said. So yes, fairy tales are a type of fantasy. Yeah, they fall under the wide umbrella. Yeah. Um, however, I would posit, and I don't think anyone would disagree with me, that fairy tales and high fantasy are definitely not interchangeable. Yeah. Um, despite often having similarities. Yeah. I would even say that fantasy and fairy tale is not interchangeable. It's, yeah. It, they're not interchangeable. You could describe fan- fairy tales as fantasy, but you couldn't call all fantasy fairy tales. Exactly. So, um, so to me, the difference between these two kind of fantasy sub-genres um, boils down to um, a couple different <clears throat> things. Um, kind of comes down to three things. Scope theme, and stakes. So I'm going to get into this stuff a little bit. Okay. All right, so I want to talk about scope first. Um, I think you're hard-pressed to find an instance of high fantasy that doesn't take place in a complex, fleshed-out universe. Um, There's history, there's culture, there's specific geography. Um, I once read an essay where somebody uh, defined high fantasy as anything that has a map in the book. Anything with a map on the first page, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the best definition, because if we go by that definition, that means that A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh is also (laughs) high fantasy. That makes sense. (laughs) I buy it. Um, But these are, you know, your Lord of the Rings, your Game of Thrones, your Harry Potter. Um, A little tiny mini disclaimer here. I wouldn't necessarily consider Harry Potter high fantasy in the same vein as like the Tolkien type stories. Um, But it definitely has a lot of the relevant traits. It does. It does. Um, Especially the fleshed out universe. Yeah. And the themes are similar. Yes. You know, you have your hero's journey and your... Uh, your prophecies and all that sort of thing. For so sure. It, it definitely yeah. fits in. And the stakes are high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, fairy tales, on the other hand, are usually self-contained. Um, for example, in Sleeping Beauty, we aren't given like a whole bunch of background information about the politics of how fairy kingdoms interact with human kingdoms. And for the purposes of the story... We don't need it. Right. It, it doesn't matter um, because that story is self-contained. Um, but if that story were used as the basis for a high fantasy property, uh, that would certainly be something that was addressed, I would think. Um, in fact, that probably already exists. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I guess to some extent doesn't like. Um, I didn't see Maleficent, but doesn't that deal with any sort of the I like. like because weren't they it. trying to do like a world buildy like yeah they tried to do like a world buildy i have kind of like i was kind of meh about that right. movie i thought it was just okay i mean i, was, um, I, didn't see I, it, I think they like kind of tried to get into that but didn't take it as far as they could my yeah. personal opinion right um so we have scope then so we have like this expansive fleshed out universe versus like a self-contained fairly simplistic story yeah um, and then our other um, thing we were going to talk about was theme. Another, just real quick, yeah. another example of high fantasy uh, that does delve into some of the, fa- which I noticed reading the first book, is the Witcher series. Oh, really? Uh, there are stories in there that are very clearly um, versions of 
like fairy, fairy tales. Tale there is a Beauty and the Beast style mm-hmm. uh, encounter that he has. I believe there's like a Sleeping Beauty style. Like so, they work in some of those traditional because it is based on like uh, Norwegian folklore and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but it's definitely a highest fantasy settings. And again, it's not explicitly those fairy tales. Like that's not the whole right. setting of it. But there are some stories within that that kind of match up with that. And that book absolutely explores the political goings-ons and whatnot of the universe. Mm-hmm. So, anyways. Um, so, theme, mm-hmm. then, was our, our next little thing here. Um, high fantasy, I hesitate to say almost always, but I'm going to say almost always, follows the hero's journey. Yeah. Uh, there's a focus on character arcs and on the personal growth of one or more of the main characters. Again, you think Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones... Harry Potter, um, all good, well-known examples. Um, fairy tales, on the other hand, are almost never about character arcs, and part of that is because fairy tales are typically short, as most did begin in the oral tradition. Um, but fairy tales are morality plays. Yeah. Um, and depending on what versions of them you're looking at, the purpose might be to teach children how to behave, or it might be to give adults an avenue for exploring difficult emotions and situations. Uh, but that's a whole other <laughs> lesson that I hope to get to someday. All right. Um, so we had scope, theme, and then our last element was stakes. Uh, high fantasy has high stakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an element of epic to high fantasy, as we learned from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes. Um, even if the characters aren't literally on a journey, there is still that epic element. Um, there's almost always a big bad yep. to be defeated in high fantasy. Your Saurons, your Voldemorts, your Night Kings, mm-hmm. etc. Um, in fairy tales, the stakes can be high, but they're usually high at the personal level. They're high for the characters, not for the entire world of the story. Yeah. Um, so, if, you know, for example, the stakes are high for Snow White personally because her stepmother wants to murder her. Yeah. Um, but the story doesn't concern itself with ramifications for the entire kingdom. If she dies, it does not particularly matter yeah. to the rest of the universe. Not within the world of the story. Not within anyway. the world of the yeah. story. <laughs> because whereas, that's not the point of the story. Yeah. In contrast, obviously, if Sauron succeeds... Right. He takes over Middle Earth. Middle Earth is just good. toast. Yeah. Um, so, but traditional fairy tales, I think, can be moved from fairy tale to high fantasy by adding these elements, uh-huh. right? By adding <clears throat> scope, by adding theme, by adding stakes. Um, for example, whether you are reading the Grimm's Ashenpoodle or Peralt's Cendrillon, Cinderella falls pretty firmly into the realm of fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, Marissa Meyer's young adult series, The Lunar Chronicles, transfers that story and a couple other fairy tales um, into a high fantasy sci-fi setting by adding a fleshed out universe, um, a focus on character arcs, and stakes in the form of a rebellion against a ruling tyrant. Sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> Indeed it does. Uh, I think you can also have properties that kind of ride the line between these two genres. Uh, for example, Chronicles of Narnia, yeah. I think is it's set in a, a pretty fleshed out universe. It does have high stakes, um, but it doesn't really focus on character arc. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia is more of a morality play. Yeah. If you're reading the books and not watching the movies. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's been a while since. I mean, other than I've only watched the first one, which we did for the podcast, but um, 
Yeah, they add a little bit more in terms of character mm-hmm. arcs to that one. But from what you, I remember even at the time you saying that that wasn't really. Yeah, it's the not case. really the case within the books. Yeah. Um, our last property, Ella Enchanted, that we talked about, um, is set in a, a somewhat fleshed out world. It's it's not fleshed out to the point that like Middle Earth is right. or like Game of Thrones, um, but it's just fairly fleshed out and it does focus on Ella's character growth but its stakes are mostly about her personal life. Yeah. Um, It it does bring up the idea of high stakes but those stakes don't really become a reality. Yeah. It's mostly about her personal stakes. Yeah, in the movie. Yeah. Or in the book. In In the the movie there are higher stakes but even those are arguably not like the same sort of level as... Right. And I I would attribute that to the tone yeah. the movie more than yeah. anything. Yeah. With a different tone, I think those stakes would have felt a lot higher. Yeah, if we had seen sort of more of what uh, his evil, her evil, uh, his evil uncle had been intending to do mm-hmm. if he achieved the throne, you know, see more of the evil side. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it truly does not matter. Yeah. Which, actually, that brings me to Stardust, mm-hmm. though. So Stardust is labeled as fantasy. Um, by Wikipedia, by Goodreads, by its publisher, Scholastic. Um, however, author Neil Gaiman has been known to refer to it as a fairy tale for adults. So then the question is, which is it? There you go. Um, so for our homework, and it's been an even longer time since we've had True. homework, <laughs> um, as we are reading and or watching Stardust, um, consider the scope of its world, its themes, its stakes, uh, and when we come back for the main episode, um, let's discuss a little bit whether we think it counts as more as high fantasy or more as a fairy tale. Sounds good. Get to work, people. <laughs> let's move on and talk about Stardust, the book. I have a surprise for you. Victoria, for your hand in marriage, I'd cross oceans. You're funny, Tristan. Oh, Tristan, a shooting star! I'd cross the wall and I'd bring you back that one star. You can't cross the wall. Nobody crosses the wall. All right, book facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stardust is a 1997 novel by British author Neil Gaiman. It's written in the tradition of pre-Tolkien British fantasy, so it follows the lead of authors like Lord Dunsay, who wrote The King of Elfland's Daughter, and Hope Merrilies. Not sure how to pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of double letters in it. Yeah. Um, so both of these authors, um, and subsequently Stardust, are heavily influenced by British folklore and legend. Um, so we're pulling a lot from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, The ideas that make up the story came from a few different places. Uh, Gaiman has talked about how one day while driving, he had seen a wall on the side of the road and had conceived the idea of the land of fairy being behind the wall. Another story goes that soon after he won a literary award at a celebratory party, he saw a shooting star and immediately came up with the idea for Stardust. Okay. Uh, Gaiman has also specifically cited William Goldman's The Princess Bride as inspiration for deciding to write a fairy tale for adults. There you go. Um, which, and I, I think with both the book and the movie, that inspiration is yes, pretty apparent. clear. Yes, yeah. it is very apparent. 
Um, Gaiman claims to have written the first draft of the novel entirely by hand. Madman. Which I believe... It's not an overly long book. It's, no, it's far. not overly long. It's not like he's writing a Feast for Crows or yeah. whatever, but still. Um, but he talked about wanting to write it um, like in an older style because it felt like an older story. And he talked about like writing it by hand and with a fountain pen. And I was like, hey, you know what? I believe that of you, Neil Gaiman. I believe that. <laughs> yeah. I buy it. Uh, the story was initially released as a four-issue miniseries with illustrations that were done by Charles Vess, um, who worked with Gaiman on a few issues mm. of Sandman. Yeah. Um, it was then published as a conventional novel without illustrations in 1999. And I think that's the version that I got from yeah. the library. does yeah. not have any pictures in it. does not appear to. Uh, critics of the novel have sometimes cited its lack of social allegories, which is something that's central in Gaiman's other adult works, um, as a complaint, to which <clears throat> Gaiman has responded, it's a fairy tale, it's like ice cream, it's to make you feel happy when you finish it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and my last little note here of the movie Gaiman has said, I tend to be extremely protective when it comes to adaptations of my work, but I enjoyed the screenplay, and I really like the film they made. There you go. That seems... I wonder when he said that. If it was, like, during the time the movie was coming out, or if it yeah. was, like, a few years later. Because I, I feel like that could be telling, in terms of, like, how potentially... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, generous he was being. I don't know why I was blanking on the mm -hmm. word generous. Um, in terms of... Because you could read that depending on how that line is delivered. Yeah, you could, could, you could read it a, a little shady. Yeah, you could. I, I don't know if that's the case, and I, I wouldn't say it necessarily is. I, I would take it at, at, at its sort of baseline context or reading and say that he does actually enjoy it. But you mm -hmm. could read it more of like... I enjoyed it, and I really like the film they made. Well, it's and it's not dissimilar to the uh, quote from Gail Carson Levine, who wrote Ella Enchanted. Yeah, where she said, "Like, I have to think of it as a different property, right?" <laughs> and that's how I enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's not quite the same thing. But, no, but no, they're not dissimilar. They're not completely dissimilar, though. Um, but yeah. All right, uh, let's move on and talk about the movie. Have you seen a fallen star anywhere? We're in a crater. This must be where it fell. Yeah, this is where I fell. You're the star. You're the star? Really? Oh, wow. You've seen stories of magical worlds. <laughs> wicked witches. <clears throat> flying pirates. And dashing princes. <laughs> But never has there been an adventure quite like this. Everyone's talking about a fallen star. When I find her, the glory of our youth shall be restored. The movie is a 2007 film written and directed by Matthew Vaughn, most known for uh, Kick-Ass, X-Men First Class, and Kingsman Secret Service. Mm. It was also co-written by Jane Joldman. I believe that's right, and that's not a typo. Might be Goldman or something. <laughs> I've never seen Joldman, but as what I wrote, uh, I'll double check that. 
I don't know. Or you can double check that. <laughs> Jane Joldman is what I have. Uh, who's co-written most of Vaughn's movies, but also, funnily enough, wrote Mrs. Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. She did that one without Matthew Vaughn, so I, I don't know, but <laughs> I'm just saying she wrote Miss Peregrine. So, um, the film stars Charlie Cox, most known as Daredevil from mm-hmm. the Netflix series, uh, long before he was ever cast as Daredevil, like almost 10 years before. Yeah. Uh, Claire Danes, uh, probably most known for Romeo and Juliet, the Lars von, not Lars von Trier. Yeah, Lars von, whoever did that one, the yeah. crazy one, the oh, modern one no, with guns. No, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's. It's not Lars von Trier. No, that's, uh, ba- Baz. Yeah, Baz Luhrmann. Yeah. Sorry. Lars von Trier, Baz Luhrmann, you can see how I got it <laughs> mixed up. Uh, Peter O'Toole, who's Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. Ian McKellen, obviously from X-Men, Lord of the Rings, and everything else. And Henry Cavill's in the movie, which I don't remember, but apparently he is. It's one of his early roles. Yeah. Uh, and also a bunch more people, uh, Ricky Gervais, other people. Uh, it was co-written and directed, uh, when co-writer and director Matthew Vaughn pitched the movie to executives at Paramount, the studio wanted somebody more recognizable to play the main character, mm-hmm. uh, and not Charlie Cox. They wanted, like, Orlando Bloom... Or see why they know, wanted something Orlando like Bloom. that. Uh, this is again f- a few five years after the pirates yeah. first pirates yeah. movies, uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, Orlando Bloom's a bankable. Uh, he's lead. A, a bankable swashbuckler. Yeah, he, <laughs> you know you get it. Um, but it was only after Vaughn uh, Matt Vaughn had cast Robert De Niro, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Claire Danes that they were like, "All right, we'll let you. You can put Charlie Cox as the lead because <laughs> like he wasn't known for any. Yeah. You know, he's just this unknown actor at the time." But Matthew Vaughn really wanted him. Well, and I, I think, too, it's a good idea to cast an unknown as as that character because he needs to be believably, like, a dork at yeah. the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can still see Orlando Bloom pulling it off, but yeah, I, I from what I remember, that Charlie Cox does make sense because um, he is a bit of a dork. Yeah. Uh, so much of Ferdy, and I don't remember who that character is, I think it's like an animated character or something maybe. Because uh, it says much of Ferdy's dialogue was ad libbed by Ricky Gervais, apparently. Hmm. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer uh, was Matthew Vaughn's only choice for the role of the Witch Queen. Uh, he had been a diehard fan of her since first seeing her in Greece too. That's an interesting thing to become a diehard fan of anything yep. from. <laughs> sure. All right, man. Uh, I mean, she's fine in that movie. The movie's yeah. not good, yeah. but she's fine <laughs> in it. So okay. Um, Terry Gilliam was originally offered the directing role. Uh, he had just, but he had just finished the Brothers Grimm in 2005 and was like, "Nah, I'm gonna take a break from fairy tales." This <laughs> so, would have been a different movie. Yeah, it would have been a more, uh, a little bit uh, quirkier, of yeah. a quirkier of a film, probably. Merrimax originally had the movie rights, uh, but then they expired without them making it. Uh, Neil Gaiman felt uncomfortable granting the rights to like anybody else. Mm-hmm. He turned down numerous directors and young actresses who wanted it to like star in the movie as the uh, the star, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally, <laughs> <laughs> to literally star in the movie. Um, but uh, Gaiman finally granted Matthew Vaughn the rights for free. Uh, Gaiman trusted Vaughn both as a friend and as someone who stuck to his word, something Ga- Gaiman considered a rarity in Hollywood. Hmm. So he pretty much personally was like, yeah, you can do this. Nobody else. Captain Shakespeare's flying boat is called Caspertine, and that's named after Matthew Vaughn's two children, Casper and Clementine. So it's a random fun thing. Uh Other people that were considered for the role of Vivain and all turned it down, in fact, Anne Hathaway, hmm. <clears throat> numerous t- appearances on this podcast. Scarlett Johansson, 
Sarah Michelle Geller, which I thought was interesting, and Jessica Alba. Like Anne Hathaway and Scarlett Johansson, I get. Mm-hmm. Sarah Michelle Geller seems a little bit past when she was a thing. A little, maybe. 2007. Maybe. I mean, Buffy's been over for five years. When did the Scooby-Doo movie come out? Yeah, she was in the Scooby-Doo <laughs> movies at that time. I don't know. just seems a little and bit Jessica past. Jessica like, Alba was... Yeah, no, Jessica Alba makes sense, busy too. Busy being, what, uh, Fantastic Four? Oh, yeah, she point? was... Uh, I think was, so. Maybe the second one. I don't yeah. remember the timelines of when those movies came out. I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen either of them. So, um, But yeah, all four of those actresses turned it down. During one of the sacrificial scenes involving the witches, a crocodile is used. And this is so weird to me. A pig was originally intended to be the sacrificed animal, but Paramount Pictures insisted on another animal, like a crocodile, as it was not as offensive. You know, it's, it's unlike pigs that we all eat all the time <laughs> and get killed all the time. <laughs> All right. I mean, I guess I get I get it in the sense of like people killing a crocodile isn't as you see it more as like a predator and like a yeah. yeah but it's just funny to me because it's like people eat pigs all the time. <laughs> sure. Okay. Great. It's not like people realize what they're doing when they eat their food. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it won the 2008 Empire Award for Best Sci-Fi Fantasy. Uh, that's a together category, mm-hmm. kind of reiterating our discussion from forever ago yeah. when we were talking about sci-fi versus fantasy it won the 2008 glad award for outstanding film wide release which glad is the gay lesbian oh i had it written down and i can't remember um something art something awards i can't remember the it full was, acronym um as gay lesbian it was originally like the anti-defamation oh yeah but i don't know if that's i don't know what, what it stands, stands for anymore. anyways uh it won uh it won the award for outstanding film uh, wide release film mm-hmm. in 2008 won the 2008 hugo for best dramatic presentation long form and the 2007 phoenix film critics society award for overlooked film of the year I don't disagree with that. I thought it was interesting. That's why I included it, because, again, it's just some <laughs> small film critic society. I assume Phoenix Film Critic Society is, like, Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, probably. But like, um, I just, because it was the overlooked film of the year is why I included it, even though it's, yeah, not, like, some big prestigious award. So that is all I have for the movie facts. I am excited to watch this again. I remember very little about it, because mm-hmm. it's been since, uh, it's been... Four years, rough, a little over four years. So, um, since I watched it, well, I'm excited, and I've only seen it once. This is my favorite movie. Yeah, you're done with the book yet? No. Okay. (laughs) Well, as soon as you're done with the book, we're gonna watch it. You guys can watch it. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. It used to be on. It Netflix. It used to be on Netflix. I used to yeah. see it every now and then. I don't, I don't know, know if it's still, I don't know if it's still on check. Netflix. But look for it on Netflix. It might still be on there because it definitely used to be. Mm-hmm. But it also made you know things go on and off there so quickly. Um, but anyways, either way, go check out Stardust and come back in one week's time where we will be breaking it down. So until that time, guys, gals, non-binary, and everybody else, keep reading books, keep watching movies, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.